Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 135th episode of the Truth Island podcast. The family unit is often said to be one of the most important and sacred institutions in life. As the old adage goes, if you can't trust your family, who can you trust? Or blood is thicker than water, a medieval proverb that suggests that family ties will always outweigh friendships or potential romantic partners. It is without question that a child without a proper family starts off on a severe handicap than someone who is born with loving parents. Statistically, children reared in single parent households are more likely to drop out of high school, spend time in the juvenile justice system, and are more susceptible to living in homes that are below the poverty line. In the 2018 book, The Boy Crisis, by feminist and professor Warren Farrell, the effects of single parent households have a much more pernicious effect on young boys who are often denied access to a father figure who they can effectively model their lives after. In a 2014 speech by former President Barack Obama, Obama acknowledges the importance of fathers in the household by saying, quote, of all the rocks upon which we build our lives, we are reminded today that family is the most important. And we are called to recognize and honor how critical every father is to that foundation. But if we are honest with ourselves, we'll admit that what too many fathers are, are also missing, missing from too many lives and from too many homes, end quote. However, as of late, many progressives have sought to challenge the notion that households should conform to the nuclear model. Some have argued that children can be raised in a variety of different arrangements, where children have multiple figures that they can identify as being a mother or father. In other situations, children are sometimes raised by extended family members, which can arise when a primary caregiver passes away. For example, the number of children that were raised by grandparents or step-parents dramatically increased after the events of the First and Second World War. In China, many rural children are left in the care of their grandparents, while both of their biological mother and father seek jobs in more urban areas to support their children. Sometimes children in the most poverty-stricken of communities can go an entire year without seeing either their mom or dad. While these arrangements can certainly provide a loving and suitable alternative to the nuclear option, the decision to have children raised by extended family traditionally was a decision made out of necessity and not by choice. The question then arises, should children be actively raised in alternative models or should it be something that only comes about as a result of circumstance? Joining me to help explore the complexities of, of the family dynamic I am once again joined by Alexander. Alex, before we traverse this complicated territory, I just want to get this one thought out first. Would you agree with me in saying that any loving family arrangement triumphs over a non-loving family arrangement? According to Maslow's law, love is something we all need. And without that, you're not, you're not instilled the habits that are required to send love to other people aren't instilled in you at an early enough age. 
Now, I do believe that anyone can change down the road, but I do think it's a lot easier to teach a new dog new tricks as opposed to an old dog new tricks. There is a reason that proverb exists. And I think the same goes with human beings. When you're not in a loving situation, your capacity to love others is nowhere near the same. And it's a sad, sad cycle that uh, humanity puts itself through with the amount of violence and despair that we unfortunately inflict upon each other. One of them being our family unit and how exterior circumstances can really start splitting that apart. Absolutely. And the reason I bring up this quote is, you know, I've known many people who did grow up in the in the nuclear family unit, but they did not necessarily have the best of parents. They may have had an abusive alcoholic father. Uh, they may have had a mother that was uh, suffering from mental illness and so forth. So I, I'm not saying that that is necessarily the majority of arrangements, but I think that if you're weighing the nuclear option, that's uh, non-loving and dysfunctional compared to an alternative <laughs> arrangement that is functional. I think that mm. I, I think in that case the um, the unconventional arrangement might triumph over the conventional arrangement that's dysfunctional or lacking love. When you're in a dysfunctional relationship, your primary concern is your personal safety. Yeah. When you're in a loving relationship, your primary concern is sharing and emanating positivity and growing something as opposed to protecting something. And that is a huge psychological shift. That is an enormous change in the modus operandi for each person. And without the capacity to love, you're not going to be reaching out for things that will duplicate, that will expand beyond the horizons of what's necessary. You're only going to be huddled in what's required for you to feel safe in the present. You're not gonna be looking at futures necessarily. And that's what love is. It's seeing something fledgling and putting enough energy into it to grow beyond where you are today and so on and so forth. And the cycle continues and it gets further and further. Wow, I, I love what you just said. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that if you're, if let's say you have a nuclear family arrangement, but the mother and the child are like hiding in a closet or something. And I've heard stories like this. I, I think my grandma uh, recounted stories of, of this, like hiding in a closet from her husband, um, you know, like, like you know, you know and, and that's, that's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And I, I think yeah. that prior to divorce, you know, this was a reality that many women faced, you know, like there, there was the, um, the temperance movement, you know, wasn't just people saying, oh, well, alcohol is bad. It's because these guys would work long 12, 14 hour days in the factory. They, and then they would get shit faced. They would get completely drunk. And if the foreman yelled at them that day, right. Or the factory supervisor yelled at them, they took out that frustration on their innocent wife and, and child. A lot, a, an entire, you know, entire generation grew up of that, and and I, I think that you're right in describing that that there's there's no love in that arrangement. It's simply a a mother like just protecting her child, right? Or or in some cases, if the husband was abusive to the to the wife, sometimes even that wife would then take out her frustrations on the child, right? So like it, it was like it was a, a chain link or a cycle of viciousness going, you know, that pretty much comprised that entire unit. Absolutely. And a big part of the temperance movement, we also need to look at how long people were living. Because back in the day, men, before there was ever any sort of uh, arena for them to allow themselves to share their feelings or whatever, 
they would most likely be shipped off to some foreign land to fight for their country. And, you know, they'd be lucky to get back by and survive past age 35, 40. So what started happening, and I believe the temperance movement was after World War One, right? This was 1930s. I think it started. Is that about accurate? Uh, well, 1920, uh, 1920s would be mostly okay, prohibition. Right, right. So yeah. right before prohibition. Okay, cool. So yeah, you can imagine they just got finished fighting trench warfare overseas. And you can't express that. You, you can't undo what you've seen in that horrible war, the most horrible war of all time. And there was no avenue for them to express themselves. And now modern medicine is coming. So they're living with these feelings for longer and longer and longer. Yes. And, and they're not alienated from it either. It's not like they go back to their nice farm, right? Where they're far away from the, the sounds of sword and shield and metal on metal. And they're just tilling soil and making things grow. There's no like holistic things. They're back into the modern era where they have to be competitive and, you know, work in factories. And there's this alienation between those two dichotomies that I think has to be talked about. And because they could live a lot longer and because they've had these feelings for longer, they've had to learn to deal with, deal with these feelings um, without necessarily being taught how to for a longer period of time. And that is just Chinese water torture. For the soul, in my opinion. Wow. Yeah. Well said, Chinese. And you know, a lot of these guys who came back from World War One, they were dismissed as being shell shocked. We didn't even have the terminology for PTSD. And then, okay, we had the Roaring Twenties, but then the Great Depression hits. So now you have guys who have fought in World War One, and now they're they're poor as hell. Like they're they're as poor as hell. It's the Great Depression. They don't have a job. You know, they they risk being evicted, and now they have like kids that are, let's say you know, 10 or nine or something like that, that they got to feed. Like they're really like the, you know, the World War II generation might be the greatest generation, but I think the World War mm. One generation had a really hard life. Like they had yeah. a really hard life because they they fought in World War One, and then they had to raise kids during the Great Depression. And so they- And then they got- ship them off to World War Two. Some of them, yeah. Some of them that <laughs> were, that, that some of them, yeah. Some of them fought in both. Um, and that's, absolutely in, insane. And we did absolutely nothing to, to do to treat these men whatsoever. We just said man up and, and you know, like you, this is what you have to deal with. So it's no surprise that, and I'm not excusing this behavior, like even though you've been through World right. War I and all this stuff, there's, there's no excuse for getting drunk and taking that out on your wife. Like, let's just be clear right. about that. None. However, I can see why in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, divorce would become so acceptable. I get it. Like I, I get like, hey, you know, this this guy is is beating the absolute crap out of me. He's abusive and so forth. And and I need a divorce. I hundred I one hundred percent sympathize with those women. However, as we start looking at the 80s, 90s, and now 2000s, a new phenomena is starting to emerge. And, th- and this we have to be a little bit more critical of. It's one thing if, if we're living in the, you know, 1940s or something and a woman is like, hey, um, you know, look at the whiplashes on my back. I need a divorce. Okie dokie. Like this, right. this is 100% acceptable. But now in the modern era, I'm starting to notice that there's a lot of divorces that are just simply based on, eh, I'm yeah. bored. I'm bored. Um, it's just, there's no fun. I, you know, our interests have kind of diverged. Um, I'm just not feeling it. Uh, yeah, I know we got a six-year-old together, but, you know, I, I met this other guy or, you know, I met this other gal. And that's kind of where 
we have to start, we have to re-examine divorce and we have to start re-examining some of these institutions because yeah. on one hand, you know, there, there was a good reason why divorce was invented and why it became popular when it did, absolutely. But now we might be going too far in the other direction where people are getting divorces for nebulous reasons. And that's tearing apart families over nothing, over just, over just I'm feeling bored or this guy doesn't really strike mm. my fancy anymore. Yeah, and I don't think that's any particular gender's fault. I think that the internet tries very hard to pick one. And it's, it's very easy to decide that. I mean, I think it's no different how, you know, what, early 2000s, 90s, it was always like, men, you know, they're so hard to get along with, you know? <laughs> and nowadays, it's the opposite. Now it's like women and hegemony and all that talk and red pill this, purple pill that. But I honestly think it comes down to the loss of practice of something sacred because the family household is sacred. It's, it is the oldest and most sacred ritual we as human beings have, which is the lighting of your hearth fire, the setting of your house, get your house in order, the rearing of your children and the passing on of your legacy. It didn't matter how evil you were, you wanted to do the same. It was something we all did. And we all took extremely seriously. The bloodline of our family name was etched in banners and in sigils and passed down from generation to generation, lands, profit, our, our money, everything, our, our skills was all passed down to the next generation. There was a uh, sacred ritual to this that I think we lost since kind of veering away towards religion and I'm not one to say one religion is better than the other. I'm saying any religion. I'm just saying the practice, like going to the gym of uh, practicing around something sacred, some sort of ritualistic purpose where there is a higher ordeal that you basically forge. You know, it's, it's a metallurgy of your current wants and needs in the present tense and what you hope to perceive in the future and how you are ascended to that new thing. And a good family home a good family that you're passing on, I think is that. So I think that there's some correlation there. I think that as more, um, what's the term when you're, when you're not so, uh, when you don't really have a religion, there's a specific word for that. Agnostic. Yeah. More agnostic thinking and more geared towards just science and not towards the spirit. Se secular, we, I think is a better that. word. Secular, secular exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, you know, there's been great advantages to that too, right? Like with the secular world, I mean, you know me, I'm, I'm a fairly secular person myself. But I think that when it comes down to the promise you make to remain in marriage, that is the least secular thing. That's not a secular choice. That's a spiritual choice. That's a bonding between two human beings to create something with each other. And we've lost a lot of those morals. Okay, I, I love I, I think I love the point that you're making, and I'm going to try and see if we can use history to kind of unwind how this happened. Sure. So let's start at the Ten Commandments: honor thy mother and honor thy father. Okay, and mm. it, it seems it seems on the surface, well, that's pretty clear cut. But then let's go ahead and take our baby boomer. Okay, let's take our baby boomer, and let's say their father was one of those alcoholic abusive types. Okay, PTSD, alcoholic abusive. I could, I'm trying to empathize with this baby boomer right now who is getting the, like the, their father is coming home and whipping them or whatever it is. 
it's probably hard for them to look at the Bible and look at the Ten Commandments and say, I'm supposed to honor this monster, this monster who beats the crap out of my mom and whips me. How the hell am I supposed to honor this monster who's coming home and and whipping me, right? And I understand that trauma. I get it. I 100% empathize with that. And I think the problem is, is that this is this is where actually Eastern philosophy can actually complement Western mm. philosophy, because according to Confucius, he said that children should respect their their mothers and fathers. Right, that's really built into his ideal of Confucian thought. However, there is a caveat that that Confucius kind of throws into this. He says that it is the obligation of the father and mother to protect the child. Okay, so. It's an exchange. And you see, in the Ten Commandments, it basically says, honor thy mother or father unconditionally, right? There's not, there's not mm-hmm. like, you know, if your father does this or that, you know, that's a way out. Confucius, however, gives us a way out. He says, if, you're, if your father is not protecting you, then you don't owe him honor or allegiance or any of those things. Wow. I and didn't I, know that. Yes. Yes. And, and, and this is where, this is the missing link in all of this. So those baby boomers who tortured or whatever by their by their abusive alcoholic father well they they don't owe their parents honor because according to confucian law their father failed to protect them failed to take care of them failed failed to protect them and that's that's okay now what we need to do is we need to examine you know a husband and wife that they're not perfect, right? No, no couple is going to be perfect. But let's just say they're they're not abusive. They're they're not monstrous. They they're firm. They're like do your homework, uh, take out the garbage, right? But they're they're not they're not whipping their kids. They're not doing anything crazy. This is where it's fair to start saying, hey, your parents give you three square meals a day. They give you a roof. They give you books to read. They give you uh, a room with heating. They're not they're not hitting you. They're not doing crazy stuff. You owe, you owe it to them to respect them. That is something that we have gotten away with. We have moved away from in our society where we have loving parents that are doing everything in their power to give you everything. And yet we're not enforcing the honor that those parents deserve. I love that, that Confucius gave that out. And that's a much more realistic perspective. That is the beauty between Eastern and Western thinking. I feel like uh, Eastern thinking there's more solace in the individual as opposed to what's required of you through society and Western thinking. That's an interesting comparison. And that's the way it should be, honestly, the Confucian way. You know, treat others as you want to be treated. That's our golden rule. But it has nothing to, it doesn't tell you how you need to defend yourself and rise above the negative influences around you. You know, that shouldn't be setting the precedent for your life. And yet Confucian's the only one saying that. I can't imagine how difficult that situation would be. I mean, the closest that I can really compare my life to something similar was my parents divorced. I didn't have my father around 24-7. Did he ever abuse me? No. Was he ever the alcoholic? No. I didn't have any of that. But I do understand the void that can be left for a young man growing up without his father. And it's not a good enough reason for me to do the same to others. It's not a good enough reason or excuse for me to just continue that path. That's not okay. And 
you know, for me, I really didn't know how to wrap my head around that situation until I learned how to really forgive this situation. And the only way I learned how to forgive this situation was by looking at it kind of like a garden, kind of like a, an environment and realizing that if you have a certain weed growing in your garden, it's going to keep everything else from doing what it's supposed to do. And that it's your duty to pull that weed out, whether that's the alcoholic father or the thought that you're not enough because your father isn't around. Whatever that weed is, you have to pull it. And at least Confucius is starting to talk about that. And I think that's important. It's as, as a man and as a, you know, as a, what I imagine a woman has to go through as well, there comes a time when you have to ask yourself, how do I do better? Absolutely. You know, I'm glad that you're mentioning this. And I'm glad that you're mentioning just this idea of, right, we have the vision of the abusive father. But I think in the 90s and 2000s, it, the more common thing is actually the absentee father, right? He's not necessarily abusive or doing crazy things in the household. He's just not there. He's just not present. And that's, that's become a much more, a much more common reality now than, than the abusive father type trope. And we need to kind of examine some of the reasons why these fathers are becoming absentee. And okay, yes, a, a lot of it might be that they're making that choice to leave whatever family structure they're in. And that, that's totally, you know, that that does happen. But going back to this idea of divorce, right? I, I think when divorce occurs, fathers sometimes don't feel welcome in the new family arrangement, or they're kind of casted out, or they find it difficult to, to reintegrate themselves with their kids. And okay, there's blame on both sides. On one hand, maybe the father should just fight through all that awkwardness and still find a way to, to have a relationship with his children. Like there, there is ownership on that. I think that mothers also, also need to, to, figure out a way of like, hey, this 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 father figure can't just be shuffled away. Like it's he's too important to my kids. We have to figure out a way that this father figure can re-enter the household with respect and dignity. And and this is talked about a lot in the book that I mentioned in the intro, the boy crisis of like how how do we not just cast away fathers and demonize them? How do we like reintegrate them into the family unit? And an even better question of if the if the marriage is kind of dingling because of things like boredom or he's just not that exciting or she's just not that exciting anymore. How do we, how do we go to marriage counseling? How do we seek interventions? How do we push ourselves to try a little bit harder and be like, all right, yeah, this person's not the most entertaining anymore, but we have kids together and we got to pull through at least, at least until the kids are like away at college or they're 18 or 19 and then they don't really care what we're doing anymore, right? I think there needs to be a little bit more of a push on society to say like, hey, if your man or your woman is is not all that abusive, they're just not that fun and entertaining, figure out a way to kind of um, push yourselves a little bit harder and make it work. Mm -hmm. How does that sound to you? You got to push yourself. I mean, that's the sacred rule of life, right? The essence of life is growth. How are you pushing yourself to grow? I would argue that, um, see, I didn't really like the word push because I feel like sometimes with matters of the heart and with emotions, pushing is the worst thing you can do. But I understand what you mean. I, I would say 
heal instead of pushing because dealing with someone like uh, an abusive father or a divorce, it's really like getting into a fight with a bear. Like You're not going to win. And if you're lucky to get out alive, you're going to be injured. Like you can't pretend like, oh, that didn't face me or that didn't do that or that didn't do this. You're going to be injured. And you got to look at it, not as yourself as a victim, but as a responsible person who took the Hippocratic Oath for your own self. Mm. And how do you go forward with the healing process in order to be completely done and through it? I think I think you make a good point, and I'm actually going to play devil devil's advocate with myself right now. Suppose okay. I suppose I met um, a wife who who went Aaron. I just don't love that man anymore. Like, what if I'm I'm like like a woman comes up to me and says, Aaron, I don't love that man anymore. He's not changing. He's not abusive. He's not dysfunctional. But I just don't love him. It's not fair that I have to spend, you know, the next 15 years with that dude who I really don't care for anymore and don't have any love for. That's not fair that I have to sacrifice my happiness. I have to sacrifice my life for the next 15 years. And that's a freaking good argument. You know, like yeah, that, 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 that woman has me pinned down to the, uh, to the wall and I'm like, ah, ah. right. And she makes a very good point. And again, it's easy for me to say this as, as I'm not married yet or I don't have kids yet. I think that these are all very, 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 very difficult things that one needs to think about prior to getting married and prior to having kids, right? Like, like I, I, I'm just throwing that out there that a lot of people might be rushing into these things without the due, due, due diligence that is required to actually see like, all right, well, you know, this guy can be a little boring at times or whatever it is. And what happens when the passion wears thin? I think that right. a lot of couples really need to do that homework before they actually do it. The other, the other component to this that, that I talked about on another podcast, I, I talked with a gentleman by the name of Patrick, we talked about having children, even though ironically none of us has children, is this, <laughs> is, is this idea of maybe marriage and children is just not right for everybody. But a lot of people get- That's true. A lot of people get forced into that lifestyle because mm -hmm. of, of pressure. So I think there's those, those several factors that are going on here. That's a hundred percent a real thing. And not everyone should have kids, even if they feel like they should, you know, we're already vastly overpopulated and you don't want to be, bring a life into misery. Absolutely. That should, um, that should be a conversation you should have with yourself. If, if you have the capacity to, to raise kids and to uh, bring them into this world with the right attitude and not everyone can do it. I say very few people can do it. Most people try, but I think very few people can actually do it. I would argue 30%. So we need to, I, I think we need better education. And th there's a few things that, that we can do to kind of make sure that the, we need to do a few things to make sure that the marriages that do occur last. And, and here's, here's what I propose to do this. One, we need to start celebrating people who are single and choose to be single and not have children. There's a lot of nasty stigmas. And I'm going to be, I said this on the last podcast I did with Patrick, is that women unfortunately bear the brunt of most of these stereotypes. Like, oh, you're a leftover woman. Oh, you're an old widow or you're an old maid or whatever it is, right? So women definitely bear the brunt of most of these 
stereotypes. If a guy gets old and doesn't have kids, oh, you're a cool silver fox, you know? Like, <laughs> so women do bear the brunt. I think that sure. we need to educate both our young women and young men to say, hey man, do you really wanna have kids? Hey, d- is this right for you? Do you really wanna be stuck with the same woman for the next 30 years? Or, or are you willing to make that commitment? And if they say, no, I, I like being single, I like having my cool uh, studio apartment and my crash pad, we kind of have to respect that and not force people into matrimony if it's just not, if they're just not meant for it. And that, and there are implications of that. That means we're going to be having a lot less children. There's going to be a lot less people populating the earth. But I think that as negative as that might be, I think that if the people who do decide to get married and have children really want it badly, and they're really prepared uh, to go through the next 18 years of a marriage that may not be all that fun, but they're really dedicated to it, I think that's better than sort of forcing people into a lifestyle that they don't quite want. See, I don't think having less people is worse. I don't think that at all. I think it's just worse from a conquest perspective. You know, it's like we only need more people in order to fuel the machine, in order to remain competitive, in order to remain from being invaded. But I think less people would be better, right? More people in houses, less food to need to grow, less trees have to be cut down, less pollution, less energy being used, more qualitative time, or yeah, qualitative time put into each person. Uh, you know, that'd be great. Unfortunately, the world doesn't work that way, right? It's oh. not going to happen. We're going to keep growing. It's it's kind of funny that this, this, this conversation is actually intersecting with another conversation and that we know that our economy is becoming more intellectually based, right? We don't need as many people manning the factories, quote unquote. So we need less muscles. We need less, less manpower. It's more intellectual work. And that intellectual work requires a smaller body of people. So it's actually funny that our economy and the need for less people is actually kind of going hand in hand pretty nicely. Hmm. That's a good point. I, I, I think that, look, regardless of the implications of having less people, more people, I mean, we, we can table that for a moment. I think what's important is that we, our society has a way of forcing people to engage in behaviors or in things that they don't necessarily want. And I've seen this firsthand as a teacher. I've seen so many parents that look miserable and they just, they don't, you can see it in their eyes. Like they don't want to be parents. And one of the myths that we, oh, every, everyone, you know, once like there's this myth in our society of like, once you have a child, all the answers will just come flowing from the heavens. And, and like, you, you'll, and it's like, I, I, I've been a teacher long enough to see that's not the case. Like some people yeah. have kids and they, they, they have their honeymoon period for a year or whatever. And then, and then they go back to who they were before marriage and before having kids and so forth. So there's that issue. Um, let's even go further and say, we've got this couple now, they've been married for five years, maybe 10 years, the marriage is starting to get boring. How do we talk this couple out of just immediately calling it quits and getting a divorce and saying, hey, uh, you know, it's my life, I, I deserve to be happy? Oh, man, I'm not a very talented marriage counselor, but I would say communication, first and foremost, a lot of people feel shame about these feelings. But you know, the the intended strength of a marriage is that you both go through something together. 
even if that means they need to be sexually active outside. A marriage is more important than just that, in my opinion. So if the person's like, look, I'll get my thrills and frills if you know we happen to dance around in other gardens, that may hurt. But if that's what the marriage needs, then you have to be able to have that conversation. You just do. You just do. Um, that's not something I necessarily agree with. But if it came down to the entire thing being kaput, what are you going to do? I also think it takes realistic conversations to identify what the problems are, right? Why do they feel their life isn't stimulated? Why do they feel they aren't going anywhere? What do they feel they're losing? What do they feel they've given up? Without those kinds of conversations, you're never going to move forward as a unit. You're going to be in despair as an individual. Now, that this is very interesting what you're saying. I, I don't actually have an answer to it, but... The idea of, let's say, a couple having an arrangement where they, you know, maybe once a month they're allowed to go out and, and be with another partner for the sake of, and this is what we talked about offline before we began, for the sake of stability of the household, right? Like they're, they're doing this, they're, they're making these concessions and they're making these compromises just for the sake of like, hey, it really helps that you're able to pick up Johnny at 3.30 when he gets off soccer practice. Like that's really important. Like the, those kind of like functional pieces are very important. And if that means that you allow uh, one of, you know, your spouse to, to, to have fun once a month or every other month or whatever, man, I don't, I, I can't, I can't put my seal of approval on that. <laughs> you know, I have to, I have to really think, think that through to be honest, but um, I yeah. hear what you're saying that you're actually, um, putting like stability over, over everything else. Am I getting that right? Yeah. I mean, what's, what's the point for one person to be happy or for the marriage to work? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can't be just for one person. Right. And that requires compromise on both ends. And like, how far do you, do you go to, to ensure that that's a question you have to ask yourself? Yeah, I, and you know, I think that it, it's a very difficult question. And I, I think, I, I think, and I, I alluded to this in the very beginning that the real, the real enemy here is lack of stability. Okay, so this is this is the real enemy of of, of all of this. And who does it affect? Adults can deal, kids. yeah, kids, right? Because adults can deal with you know instability. They they can totally adjust to it and deal with it. Children need stability. They need a solid yeah. figure to call mom, and they need a solid figure to call father, or or archetypes, arch, arch, archetypes of, of 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 those manifestations, right? Where it becomes dangerous is where it's like, hey, Billy, this is going to be your new father, and then there's just there's all of these different actors coming in, and each of mm -hmm. them has different personalities. Now, like I said, sometimes this happens out of necessity. If your father fought in World War II and he died, well, then okay, you know, yes, we need, you know, it's okay for the mom to go out there and find an, a suitable alternative. What's not okay is for a new alternative to kind of come into your life every single year or every other year. A great book I recommend is, um, did you ever see the movie uh, or watch or read the book, uh, Hillbilly Allergy? No, but I have heard of it. Yeah, great book. And he describes like when he's growing up, his mom you know, was, was working as a nurse and every, like every year she would have a new boyfriend. Every year there was a new boyfriend. They would like literally like leave one apartment and go live with this boyfriend who already had kids or whatever. And then, oh, you know, we're breaking up. And 
some of these guys were pretty nice. Some of them were okay. Some of them were really mean. But the most important thing here is that that kid did not have stability in their life. They kept on having all of these new different father figures. Some were good, some were bad, some were you know, uh, in between. But stability is super important. And as you just said here, sacrifices have to be made for the benefit of the child, right? And, and, and that mother who's saying, well, hey, don't I deserve to be happy? Or that father who's saying, don't I deserve to be happy for the next 10, 10 years? I would politely say, yes, you do have the right to be happy, but doesn't your kid also deserve stability for the next 10 years? I would put that over your need to be happy. I mean, this is what happens when you have kids. It's no longer about you. It, it can't. It can't be about you. Um, and I think, that's a, I think that's what it needs to be. You have to prioritize because it's, you're no longer a sole proprietor of your life. You have someone else who's uh, under your protection. And that's always going to require sacrifice. And you get a lot from that too, right? You do get a lot from that. You get a, a purpose. You get uh, an education that no one else gets unless they've had kids. This is just what it comes with. It doesn't have to be that way. You can build it so that it doesn't, but there will be a day when you have to make a hard choice. I do this. Like, I'm sure how many times have parents decided, I'd be a lot happier if I could just have two glasses of wine and not go pick up my kid from soccer practice. Right? I, I, I've, I worked with a lot of teachers that were parents and they said stuff like that all the time. <laughs> but they still ended up picking their kids. You know, they still, they may have said that, but they still ended up doing the right thing. Right. So there's like the joke, you know, where all the parents are like, oh, we're in this together kind of thing, you know, and parents do that, you know, like, oh, this kid, you know, kids, oh man, this, that. <laughs> um, but, you know, if the house was burning down, they wouldn't be going, running over to save their bottle of wine. They'd be saving their kid. So like, you have to take it somewhat with a grain of salt, but you know, happiness isn't, um, happiness isn't a spontaneous thing. I don't think happiness is kind of like a, a momentum, a momentum towards life where you, when you're sitting quietly on a porch, looking up to the sky, taking stock of what you've been doing and where you're going to go, I can bring you a sensation of happiness. I think the same thing happens with your kids. You feel proud that you've raised them in a stable home. That brings out happiness. And yeah, of course, kids need stability because kids are the least stable things ever. Even, even less stable than adults. Usually the adults are somewhat stable. It's the world around them that isn't. Kids need the opposite until adulthood. Yes, yes. You, you know, listening to you speak, I just thought of something. You actually just inspired my um, thought. Oh. Okay. You know, when you get married, there's something called marriage vows, right? Like, you, yeah. you know, like you, you, the man will make the list of, I promise to do always this. And the woman will say, uh, the, the, uh, the bride will say the same thing. What if when a woman gets pregnant, there's something called children vows? Yeah, right? Like, because we, we have marriage vows, but maybe our society needs children vows. So when the woman gets pregnant and the child, you know, is born, the parents make vows to their, you know, like obviously this like, you know, three day old baby is not gonna be able to understand any of this, but you know, we all got video cameras and we got our Instagrams and whatever, <laughs> right? Like, why don't we go on Instagram and be like, this is what I vow 
to be as a father, or this is what I vow to be as a mother. So this way, right. you know, 10 years down the line, now you got on Instagram or whatever, right? Instead of putting your stupid like Disney photos for the thousandth time on, on Facebook, now, now we're going on Facebook and now we got some like archived video document of you making a vow to your baby saying, I will always be there. I will always provide this. I will always right. pick you up at 3.30 from whatever practice or something like that. And then, and then when marriage gets tough, when it gets really dull, when it gets boring and monotony and those, you're washing the dishes, dishes for the thousandth time, now you have child vows that you can kind of fall back on. Like, well, I did take a sacred vow to my son to be here. And again, when that kid turns 18 and goes off to college or they're in their late teens and it's not going to really affect them as much, then we can start kind of being a little bit more selfish again, right? We, when the kid's gone, they're in college or even the upper stages of high school, I, I think at that point, they already got their friends, they already got their girlfriend, they don't, you know, it doesn't really matter as much. I think then you can become a little bit more inward and selfish. But during the, the critical junctures of child development, they need to be there and they need to be stable. They need to be stable. They need to be stable because I, I, feel, I feel like it's almost like putting a lattice up for uh, an ivy plant. You know, like the ivy is wild, it'll go all over the place, but the structure that you get from that stability is really what makes it grow straight and tall. And I feel like parents are kind of the same way. And that's the purpose of stability. Yes, yes. I, I think I think above all, st stability is going to be key. It's going to be the thread that keeps all of this together. And I, I do think that we need to reverse course and, 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 you know, we, we know that the baby boomers, you know, forgive me, baby boomers, you are a little bit selfish. So just be, let's just be a little honest here, right? It's not all about you. It's not all about you. It's not all about your happiness and your instant gratification. You might have to say to yourself for the next 12 years, I'm stuck with this woman. I'm stuck with this kid. And I took a vow to make the best of it. You know, and there might be, and I know a decade seems like a long period of time or 18 years or, or however long. I know that seems like a long period of time, but that's why I keep saying, think long and think hard about what you want your life to look look like. You know what I mean? And, and even if that means you never end up with kids, even if it means that you never end up married, that's okay. As long as you know yourself and you've thought long and hard. And, and like I said, I'm a huge proponent of... Um, waiting until you're in your 30s before getting married and having kids. I definitely think you need to take the entire, the entirety of your 20s. And, and again, I'm a guy, I, you know, we have no, we, we can start a family at 45 or whatever, right? Like we're, we're, we're lucky in that regard. I'm totally, yeah, totally, are. I totally yeah. hear that. But seriously, take your time, know what it is that you want in life and know that if you get married, that's, that's an obligation. And if you have kids, that really is a serious obligation and you can't just wedge your way out of there because eh, I'm not having fun right now. Alex, right. thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. This concludes the 135th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.